Hello, everyone, and welcome to BibleQuest.tv, the Tuesday edition. We hope you'll join in on our conversation today with your questions and comments. Uh, with us today is Stephen from Gettysburg. Hi, Stephen. How you doing? I am doing well, Drew, now that I've got my audio and video turned on. How are you doing? Yeah, I came in a little quick on that one, introducing you. Good to see you again. I'm doing fine, thanks. Scott, also from Gettysburg. Hi, Scott. Hey, Drew. Hey, everybody. Thanks for being here. And Jeff from Exton, PA. Hi, Jeff. Good afternoon. And Noah is our webcast engineer who's helping out with uh, your questions and comments as you send them in. And I'm your host, Drew, from Honesdale, Pennsylvania. Welcome, everybody, to the program today. But before we get started, I'd like to mention a little bit more. Uh, well, I'll let the panelists give a little bit more information about um, who they are, where they are, and where they work from, for those that don't know them. And... Um, and I don't believe we've done this in the past, but uh, I think it'd be good for people uh, to get to know, you know, what you guys are doing and where you're hanging out besides hanging out here on the internet. So Stephen, I've been, I've been saying you're from Gettysburg, PA, but uh, haven't you just started preaching someplace else in the new area? Yeah, both Scott and I have been helping out with a new work that has begun in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and Lord willing in April of this coming year, uh, Brianna and I are planning to move up there to work full time with that group and uh, looking forward to uh, that transition in the work, but we've already been uh, helping out with just some of the preaching and teaching up in that area. And what's the, what's the town itself called again? Harrisburg, the capital Harrisburg. of Pennsylvania. How far away is Harrisburg from, from where you're at? It's about 45 minutes to an hour North of where we're at. Oh, that's not bad. That's not bad. Scott, what about you? Where, what are you doing? Where are you working? Uh, I'm here in Gettysburg and also working with the new work up in uh, Harrisburg as well. Okay, fantastic. And, and where's the church located there in uh, Gettysburg? We are, we used to be right downtown, uh, but I love that little old building, but it was just too small. And so we had to build a build, bigger building here. We're about two miles north of downtown. Well, that's uh, nice. I think I was in that building many, many years ago. It was a nice building, yeah. Jeff, what are you doing? Yeah, well, Drew, I'm out on the main line, what's called the main line, west of Philadelphia in Exton, Pennsylvania. Exton is a Philadelphia suburb right on US 30 and um, a little bit north of Westchester, if people know where that is. And we actually have people who live in, in Delaware and drive up to worship with us. So if you're in southeastern Pennsylvania, um, northern Delaware, or even just across the river in New Jersey, uh, we'd be within driving distance. I'd be, we'd be glad to have you come visit our services on Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock. It would be a good time. Dale, Pennsylvania. It's a small little town, very nice and quaint. I'm cracking up, Jeff. I got to get my cameras working like that. <laughs> you want to be you, what it is. You want to be able to do this. You want to be talking to the camera and then be able to say now about that, like that. Oh, of uh, Pennsylvania, and it, we we meet. We're a small group, and we meet in the Sealyville Firehouse meeting room, which is like a mile and a half out of downtown Honesdale. But um, it's it's a nice work up here. It's a small group. They're strong, and I'm really enjoying working with them. And uh, thanks for asking too. Jeff, can you go back to the other camera view for a minute? I want to go back. Okay, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Right. See, so what? What? What about it, Scott? 
fuck can I do for you? On a cabinet over your, what would be left. our right shoulder, your left shoulder, it looks like there is a note on the window. And I'm wondering if it says, don't forget to show off your two cameras. <laughs> <laughs> uh, too much, too much. All right. Well, thank, thanks, guys, for sharing these things with, and for showing us your camera operations. That's great. Uh, with that said, let's get into some discussion here. Now, now Scott, you wanted to throw out uh, some unrelated scenarios to us again, like last week. And uh, we all said, sure. But I said, okay, Scott, what scenarios are you going to throw at us? And what did you say? I ain't I'm going to tell you. Like last yeah, exactly. So we'll we don't throw know them out as we don't they know what's we, we don't know what's coming our way. And right. So, so you're in the same situation as the audience. Yeah. And, and so I think we're going to call this segment whenever we do it, Scott, what you got. All right. But aren't we starting today with the material on atonement that Jeff's going to go over for us? And exactly. We'll... I'm just testing to make sure you remember where we said we we're going to start. <laughs> I'm remembering. <laughs> All right, so Jeff, you're going to talk with us about Isaiah 53 and that there's a connection with baptism in Isaiah 53? Yeah, well, so the, the basic idea that we want to spend a few minutes talking about is the fact that Jesus died for our sins and that the Bible speaks of our sins being laid on Jesus or Jesus bearing our sins in his body on the cross. He died for everybody. But not everybody's going to be saved because not everybody does what is necessary to have that connection made between themselves and Christ's death. So that's the idea that we want to look at just a little bit. And so let's look over at Isaiah chapter 53. And you guys can help us highlight the passages in Isaiah chapter 53 that talk about Jesus uh, dying for our sins, that our sins, that he bore our sins. Um, and I've got a screen I'm going to share here, and we can share with the viewers uh, the text itself. So I have Isaiah 53, starting with verse 4 on screen. Can you guys see that now? Yep. Yes. Yep. And right now I've got verse 6 highlighted, but we might look back up here at verse uh, 4. Surely our griefs he himself bare, and our sorrows he carried. Um, that passage is quoted in Matthew, the 8th chapter, in connection with Jesus healing people of their physical maladies. And in, so in a sense, he bore their physical illnesses. But of course, what's the point of Jesus healing people miraculously and taking away their physical maladies? What's the point of that? To show what he can do for us spiritually. Yeah, he's the great physician, and not just the great physician in a physical sense, but take away our spiritual ailments. And then you come down to verse 6, and it says, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. That's not actually the passage I wanted to highlight there. Um, but, the, well, while we're at it, let's look at this. That language in Isaiah 53, verse 6, about sheep going astray is reflected in 1 Peter 2, verse 25. You were continually straying like sheep. You guys have noticed, I'm sure, the, the allusions to Isaiah 53 in 1 Peter 2? Yes. In verse 22, it says Jesus is uh, described as, not committing any sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. In Isaiah 53, 9, it talks about no deceit being found in him. Um, in verse 23, uh, it says, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. And Isaiah 53, verse 7, calls attention to him being like 
a sheep that is silent before its shearers? What, just briefly, somebody highlight the, the instance or an instance in, in the story of Jesus that brings that idea out, a sheep being silent before its shearers, not uh, reviling in return. Isn't it when he's before Pilate? And I forget if it's either Herod or Pilate where he says, do you not see what great accusations they're making against you? Have you nothing to say for yourself? And he didn't answer him a word. And so he marveled. And yeah. also before the Sanhedrin during the night with all the abuse and uh, attacks on him, he says very little there. And in fact, there's a point there in Mark, the 14th chapter, where uh, Mark just says, uh, he gave no answer. He made no answer as they were, as they were accusing him. Um, and then you have this language, for by his wounds you were healed. And, and you see the allusion to chapter, Isaiah 53, chap, chapter 53, verse 5. And this phrase right here, by his scourging we are healed. And, and, but the, the, especially what I want to call attention to is this idea. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Our sins in Jesus' body being punished. We go back to Isaiah 53, and it's the latter part of verse 6 that I wanted. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. There are other places in this chapter where we have this idea, right? Where you have our sins being borne by Jesus or being laid on Jesus, being carried by Jesus. That's right. Toward the end, uh, repeatedly, the idea, yeah. Uh, he will justify the many. He will bear their iniquities. Yeah. So, so the question that, that I want to have our viewers think about is if Jesus died for everybody, if he, and, and in the Bible describes him bearing our sins when he died, then why isn't it that everybody is saved? Why are many people going to be condemned? Are their sins not borne by Jesus? And there's an interesting um principle illustrated in the Old Testament sacrificial system where people's sins were laid on the head of a sacrificial animal. Um, and let's go back to Leviticus. There's several passages in Leviticus where it talks about when a man brings an animal to be sacrificed, he lays his hand on the head of the lamb or on the head of the goat. Uh, but I want to call attention to two passages, I guess. One is Leviticus, the first chapter, and if one of you guys could read, starting in verse 2, and read through verse 4. Leviticus 1, 2 through 4. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it, a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. And so you have the idea that there's atonement for his sins, but he must lay his hands on the head of the animal, on the head of the goat, say, that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. There are many animals that died from time to time, no doubt there were occasions when an animal, a sheep or a goat, would run off and get lost somewhere. That didn't atone for anybody's sins. But if you brought the animal to the doorway of the tent of meeting and you laid your hands on the head of the goat and then it was sacrificed, 
Now, that was when atonement would be made for the man who's, who's offering the animal. Leviticus, the 16th chapter, is the description of the Day of Atonement proceedings. And on that day, there were two goats involved, and one goat is killed, and one goat is sent away into the wilderness. And just briefly, before we look at the passage, my thoughts are that those two goats together represent what Jesus accomplishes in the cross. And maybe one of you guys would elaborate. What verse are you going to? Leviticus chapter 16, in verse 20, 21, 22, 23, um, where we're talking about the live goat. So there's a goat that is killed, and then there's a live goat that is sent away into the wilderness. And, and I'll just, I, my thought is this. Those two goats together represent both, the, both of the things Jesus did. He, he suffered for our sins. He died for our sins like the goat that is killed. But in doing that, he removed our sins, as the psalmist says, as far as the east is from the west. Right. And so the one goat that's sent away into the wilderness illustrates that. Right. The language, though, for the purposes of of the point we want to make today, the language in verses 21 through 22 are important. Uh, And I'll read it here. Verse 21 then Aaron, now this is talking about the live goat, the one that's going to be sent away. Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat. There's the laying the hands on the head again. Again. And confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. And the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. So it seems clear the point of putting the hands on the head of the goat is to make the connection so that when this goat goes away into the wilderness, it's not just a goat wandering away, it's a goat carrying the people's sins away. Now, Jesus died for our sins. We looked at Isaiah 53 and we saw where he bore our sins in his body according to 1 Peter 2 verse 24. Um, But just like in the Old Testament sacrificial system, there has to be a connection made between the worshiper for whom Christ is going to make atonement for sin and, and the death of Jesus or the sacrifice that Jesus makes. And I think there's a New Testament passage that highlights what that connection is. Maybe you guys want to highlight that because I left my New Testament laying over there on the table. So maybe one of you guys wants to call attention to that while I walk over and get my New Testament. All right, let's turn over to the book of Romans and go to chapter 6. In the context of Romans here, Paul's been talking about the problem of sin. It's the problem of Jews and Gentiles, 1 through 3. The problem is not solved by law. Law points out the problem of sin. And Jesus has brought grace, but then the question is asked, well, now that we're under grace, should we just go ahead and keep sinning? And to put it in uh, the picture as you've described with the goat, hey, since the goat's taken away all our sins, you know, let's just (laughs) do more and more for him to, to take away. And so we begin in Romans chapter six, verse one, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin 
still live in it. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So there's a point of connection with the death of Jesus Christ being described here. Of course, Paul's point is to say, you died with Christ, so don't continue living in that old way of life, which has been put to death. But he calls attention to the point of transition, where my sins are connected with Jesus' death on the cross, where I'm connected with Jesus' death on the cross. As Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. So now when Jesus dies, it's not just Jesus dying, but Jesus dying for me and taking on in himself my sins, like that goat that was sacrificed in the Old Testament was connected with the worshiper when the worshiper put his hands on the head of the goat. So, so, you're, so, you're, so Jeff, you're saying then the connection there, the similarity is that they physically put their hands on the goat. And in the case of, of with Christ, we physically are buried in the water of baptism. Yeah, and there's your two connections. Yeah, and and specifically, Paul says it's baptized into Christ's death. So it's the point of baptism that we're being connected to Christ's death. And And in verse 5, he mentions, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, Mm -hmm. certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Right, right, right. So, so many people, you know, say, well, of course, we're saved by Jesus and that they usually understand we're saved by Jesus' death. But so many people who would say that don't think that baptism is all that important. They think of baptism as something that happens later on after you're saved. Um, but in the New Testament, the point is being made, I need to be connected with Jesus' death, and that happens at the point of baptism. Yeah, that's a, a very important point, because uh, I think that the majority of uh, religious organizations don't have that concept. I don't accept that concept. But I was, did you do, I'm going to put a little plug in for the Wednesday show, Bible Quest has got a Wednesday show as well. Didn't you just do uh, a while back, I don't know, a few weeks back on um, baptism? Why is baptism such an anathema? I don't know. Um you can do it on a future one. <laughs> you, had, you had a guest speaker on, and I forget who the guest speaker was. Yeah, we, we often, well, usually on the Wednesday program, we try to have a, a guest on, and um, usually that guest will have some particular area of expertise or knowledge or experience or something we'll prevail upon. Uh, I don't remember in particular doing that, Drew, but I, you're, you're probably right. And anybody want us to want to listen to the show, uh, the programs, either the Wednesday or the Tuesday, they're available on podcast form as well. You can subscribe there and listen to them at any time. Have we invited our viewers to join in and help us out today with their questions, things that they'd like for us to address? We no, have not. This would be a good time to invite our viewers to do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Send us your questions in. You can text them in if you're on the Facebook, Stephen's Facebook page. Or you can use the Q&A box on the Zoom app. And you can even call in and let us take your questions by audio if you're on the Zoom app as well by clicking the hand icon. Yeah, please do. A couple things briefly before we move on in connection with the material Jeff just went over. Uh, If this is new to you, 
if you have not looked at these connections before, let's just mention a few other passages that you can look up in your Bible and, and read. Uh, for example, on the day of Pentecost, when the people, having been confronted with the prophecy, the miracle, the the falling of the Holy Spirit, the announcing of the resurrection of Christ, the evidence that he had risen, and the announcement, you crucified the Messiah, they were cut to the heart, and they said, what should we do? Acts 2.38, what was Peter's answer? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Saul of Tarsus, after having the Lord speak to him and appear to him on the road, after three days of fasting in his repentance, after three days of praying, what did Ananias say to him in Acts twenty two sixteen? He said, Saul, you have already been saved when you called upon Jesus as your personal Savior. Now, therefore, why tarriest thou? Rise and join some church, and if they want you to be baptized, that would be a good thing to do. Surprisingly, <laughs> not reading from Scripture there. You say that's not what it says? That, that's not what it says. I'm sure but, that you know, must be what it says. That's what you, preacher after preacher says. Yeah, if you listen to the preachers on TV and in a lot of churches, you might think that's exactly what he would have said. So what did he say? Uh, actually, Ananias said to him, this is Acts 22, verse 16. What did Ananias say? Now, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Oh, but see, see, here's the thing, though. His sins hadn't been taken care of yet because he hadn't called on the name of the Lord yet. He was still a Jew thinking in terms of whatever. He, he needed to come to Christ, and he really hadn't had any, there's nothing that indicates he had, you know, had any kind of change. Uh, Jeff, 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 Jeff. What part of the three days he was blind you're not aware of? After seeing the Lord and speaking with the Lord and the Lord telling him, this is what you're going to do, and doesn't that count? Well, but he hadn't called out to the Lord yet. Well, this phrase, call out to the Lord, is found, I can think of three places in the New Testament. It's in Romans 10, where it talks about, uh, in connection with, uh, with mouth confession, not that we're a sinner, but confession of Christ is mentioned and calling on the Lord. It's also you. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And when they asked what to do, Peter didn't say, pray to Jesus and tell him you're a sinner. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. So, Jeff, Jeff, I think what Scott is saying is that there's the definition of calling on the name of the Lord. <laughs> I, I, yeah, and of course, I'm, I'm kind of playing the, the what's his name's advocate. <laughs> but, but I also would make this observation. It always amuses me when somebody supposes that Paul hadn't called on the name of the Lord yet, in some sense, uh, or that he hadn't. He hadn't done the equivalent of what people do today when they say, uh, Jesus, I accept you as my personal Savior, or, or please save me, or please forgive me, or something. Here's a man who has been persecuting Christians. He has been trying to destroy the faith of Jesus Christ. He has he's been, aware of Jesus of Nazareth. He just thinks he's up till now thought he was a false prophet. And then he sees him alive having been raised from the dead, he is obviously uh, having a change of heart. 
he is fasting for three days and he's praying for three days, what in the world does anyone think he would have been praying for those three days? <laughs> he would have been begging for forgiveness and begging for mercy. But he needed to be baptized and wash away, have his sins washed away. Stephen. And, and you know, when you look at the pattern that God sets up through the Old Testament, it's, it's notable to me that water is often the dividing line in the Old Testament. Yes. When the children of Israel come out of slavery in Egypt, what's kind of the dividing line between slavery and freedom? They, they pass through water. When they came through the, the, the Red Sea, and as a matter of fact, in Exodus 14, 31, I believe it's verse 31, after it describes their coming through the sea and Pharaoh's army being drowned in, in the water, it says, thus the Lord saved Israel that day. That sounds like what Peter said when in talking about the same event. And, and it was in First Peter, he says that and in, the, in like manner, baptism now saves you. Yes, that was referring to a different event. He's referring to in the time of Noah when water separated. Oh, right, right. I was getting the events mixed up, but there's more water. That's right. So Noah, and then you've got the Exodus, and then you've got the crossing into the promised land. Uh, They pass over through the Jordan River. They go through the water uh, on, on dry land into the, the promised land. You've got Naaman in the time of the kings, the difference, the, the dividing line between his sickness and his health is dipping seven times in the Jordan River. Um, and then the New Testament, uh, the blind man in John 9, you know, is told to go and wash in the, I believe, pool of Siloam. And he comes back seeing the dividing line over and over again in the Old Testament. And then so even into the New Testament is water. And the Samaritan woman, wasn't she asking for the water that Jesus said, I'll give you water that you'll never thirst? Yeah. So let's, let's say this. Jesus' death on the cross is the thing that takes away our sin. Yes. But God has, throughout the Bible, required man to, in some way or another, express his faith, demonstrate his trust in God. Uh, you know, when, when the Israelites came to Jericho, God gives them the city. He makes the walls fall down. They didn't do it. But he said, you march around the city. Uh, and when they did what God said, then he made walls fall down. Naaman that you just mentioned, Stephen. It was God's power that took away his leprosy. Amen. But it was when Naaman did what God said to do that God took away his leprosy. Now, God could say anything he wants to say. He'd say, here's the death of Jesus Christ. I'm going to punish your sins in his death if you, and he could have said whatever he wanted to. He chose water, and and we can see reasons why he chose water. It represents a burial when the person goes down into the water and is buried in the water. There's the cleansing aspect of water, the washing. Um, but the point is, that's what God chose, and the the response of faith is going to be to say, okay, I'll do what God tells me to do. We have a comment from Andy, Andy who says, calling on the name of the Lord is not just a one-time event. Is it compare 1 Corinthians 1, 2? Well, starting in verse 1, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, even them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all that call upon 
the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I like that. In every place. I like that point. We, we, we don't just stop calling. We, we need to be uh, coming to God in Christ because he, he is the way to the Father. Yeah. Thank you, Andy. Uh, I would like us not today, but soon to do a program where we will address objections to what the Bible says about baptism, because there's a lot of different objections that people come up with, even in spite of the many clear statements in scripture. So let's plan on doing that soon. And we'll just go through and look at some common objections. I believe we want have one more uh, statement here. Oh, that's says from Noah who's helping us out here. All right. Uh, let's turn now to our project of using the Bible as a tool chest to pull out examples, text, principles, uh, individuals in the Bible who face different things and using them uh, as a resource when we face different situations. Hey, Scott, last yes. week you called it the, using the the Bible was a toolkit. Are you changing it to tool chest? <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> I am so inconsistent. So the Bible is a toolbox. <laughs> <laughs> the Bible is a tool shed. <laughs> let's let's open the chest kit box shed and uh, start looking here at different situations. Okay, guys, scenario number one, temptation to compromise. You or, or you're helping someone in this situation. Uh, you're in a situation and say it's in a church and someone is doing something wrong. And there is a temptation not to confront it. And we're not just talking about you're not sure it's the best judgment or there's some question as to the actual facts uh, or there's just one witness instead of two or three or whatever. There is something wrong. There is something evil. There is something insubordinate to Christ. And the party involved maybe has a lot of money. Maybe has a lot of relatives in the church maybe is your best friend, maybe for some reason there's an atmosphere of wanting to ignore the sin because of who the sinner is and to just compromise. And so while used to, we would have preached on, say if he's a drunk, on drunkenness, now there's a temptation to leave that off. Or if he's involved in homosexual behavior, now it's in a temptation involved not addressing that or whatever it is. So principles on compromise. Hmm. Well, you want to start one. One, I can go. I can go first. Um, I think about James chapter five, nineteen and twenty, the the very last statement of the book of James. Uh, James chapter five, starting in verse nineteen, says, "My brethren." If any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. There you go. If when this is somebody you really care about, if this yeah. is a friend or a family member, what do you want to do for him? Yeah, you're actually showing hatred toward them in a sense. Uh, you're not showing them love. 
by not telling them what they're doing wrong. Uh, you want to save their soul from death, and the way to do that is to turn them from their sins. Very good. Other thoughts? Yeah, Paul says um, in Galatians, the first chapter and verse 10, as he, as he talks to the Galatians about things they, have got, they are doing wrong or have wrong, he says, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still pleasing men, I should not be a servant of Christ. And just in general, the idea of compromise, of the idea of not compromising, Daniel, the character Daniel in the book of Daniel, the man Daniel, is always so impressive to me. As a young man, uh, taken away captive to a foreign land where he is obligated to please his captors for his health, <laughs> He stands with resolve and, and makes the choice, I'm going to do what's right. And his friends in Daniel, the third chapter, uh, in spite of the threat of being thrown in the fiery furnace, they, they resolve to do what is right. And, and Daniel, again, in Daniel, the sixth chapter, when he's an old man and, and there's the pressure to do what is wrong uh, or else he'll be thrown in the lion's den and he continues to do what is right. Uh, those, those are always powerful examples to me. Very good. Drew? Well, I don't have a specific scripture. I think maybe you can help me out if there, I, the principles are there. But um, the reason why I would hesitate, and I use the term, any of us would hesitate, I would think, the motivation at the base level could be cowardice. Yeah. I'm afraid that they're not going to like me. I'm afraid that I'm going to lose the advantage I have in the relationship. I'm, I'm afraid that it's going to go negative for me. That's, so therefore, I'm, I'm acting like cowardice in the situation. And I can just think of um, Jesus was not a coward at all and faced straight right. on what he was going to be doing. Um, well. And, but on the other hand, I can look at Peter. Wasn't Peter acting cowardice? Yes. At that point when he denied him three times? And what was he exactly. afraid of? He was afraid of being associated with him because whatever outcome was going to come to him, it's going to be applied to him. So then we, 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 we fear these things because we're afraid. And in Revelation chapter 21, when it lists the people who are going to be tossed into the lake of fire, yes, got the cowardice. Cowardry. Yes, yes, exactly. And I was thinking of that passage and thinking that especially in the context of the book of Revelation, what you have is a message to people saying, don't compromise. And, and there's all this pressure to compromise from the Roman Empire, from those who are, are empowered by Satan. And, and the message is not to compromise. Yeah. And, and a couple of true. Fearful yeah, and to, that, to Jeff's point, it wasn't just the, the Roman government. It was their own families. Their families were trying to uh, uh, persecute them or encourage them not to go into this new, crazy belief system. And in some ways, the book of Hebrews and the book of Revelation both have the key point of hold fast. You know, don't give up. Be faithful until death. And a couple more uh, thoughts along that line, then we'll move to our next scenario. Uh, Paul writing to Timothy he says, I charge you, this is 1 Timothy 5, 21, I charge you in the sight of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing by partiality. 
And he also says in the next verse, don't be a partaker in other men's sins. Stephen. We have an anonymous uh, viewer who has contributed something else. They say, uh, the Corinthians should not have tolerated the man who had his father's wife. Exactly. But more than that, they were boasting in their tolerance. Paul rebukes them and instructs them to address this. And that's, of course, from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, is that situation where he says, do you not know a little leaven? Leaven's the whole lump. You know? Yeah, very good, very Get good. leaven out of there. Very good. Uh, and we, I don't also just might mention, we have an example in the Old Testament, uh, one of the first uh, uh, or, or one of the significant judgments brought upon some Israelites there in the book of Leviticus, two fellows consumed by fire by the Lord. And who, who were they? Nadab and Abihu? Yeah. Who were they? Sons of Aaron. Yeah. And nephews of? Moses. Moses. And that didn't make it okay. All right. Uh, next question. Um... Oh, we got so many here. Let's go with this one. Uh, sexual temptation. Uh, maybe someone is, they've met someone at work. Maybe there's some issues going on in their marriage and they are kind of falling for this person at work that's been flirting with them. Uh, or maybe someone has uh, uh, uh problem with their internet use, they're going to look at pornography, or maybe it's uh, an unmarried person and they are being tempted to involve themselves sexually with other people. Genesis 39. Yeah, Joseph, that's the clearest one. Yeah. Read that for us. It came about as she spoke to Joseph day by day, Potiphar's wife, that he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household was there inside, and she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. Amen. New Testament, flee fornication. Yes. I I think of Job 31, and this is in the context where Job is asserting his integrity, kind of the finale of his speeches. And in Job 31, it's sometimes been called the Proverbs 31 for men, uh, because Job illustrates what it looks like to be a godly man. Uh, Job 31, 1, the very first thing he says in this chapter is, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? And there it's easy sexual temptation to draw the line in all the wrong places and say, well, I'll tolerate this, but as long as I don't do that, then I haven't really sinned. Jesus said in Matthew 5, when you look to lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. And so make a covenant with your eyes and start draw the line where Jesus draws the line. In fact, it's drawing it before you get there. That's right. You've already made the decision that you're not going to act a certain way. When situations in life tempt you to act that way, you've already made the decision. Not going to do it. How many times have you heard somebody say, well, it just happened. (laughs) (laughs) No, it didn't just happen. One thing that happened by Joseph fleeing was it didn't happen. Right. <laughs> it's hard to commit fornication with somebody way, way over there. It, it's yep. people put themselves in situations. They start desiring things. Like, well, I, well, I'll just be flirting. Well, I'll just this or, or just that or something else. And that's true Even with in pornography the as well. And that's true with that with pornography. as That's well. right. It's the, uh, 
well, maybe if I go to this website, who knows what might be there? You know, it's not necessarily somebody says, I'm going to go looking for something, but well, there's potentially something there. And I can tell myself I'm not really going to find it because I don't know what's going to be there. But there's a little thing in the back of the mind that maybe I can look. And to that, I say Romans 13, 14. The very last verse, Romans 13, he says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Uh, sometimes we, oh, well, I won't sin, but I'll make provision for it. I'll kind of provide myself an opportunity. And he says, you put on Jesus Christ. You make no provision for the flesh. To and there it is again. That's, in, that's before anything even happens. It, you've already made that decision. Right. Right. So it's kind of like the kid that wants a cat and his parents said, no, we are not going to get a cat. But he starts leaving cat food around on the porch. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's making provision. Sooner or later, he's going to get a cat. <laughs> One will show up. And then he says, it just happened. It just yeah. happened. Yeah. 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 All right. Um, all right, let's go to another one here. You've got, let's see if we got time for this one. Yeah, we got, let's squeeze it in. You've got an adolescent or a teenager at home, and they're starting to develop just a surly attitude. Uh, they're kind of feeling entitled and starting to speak disrespectfully and just being moody and surly. What do you need to do? What do they need? What are some biblical principles? This isn't where we go to Deuteronomy about the child. <laughs> uh, uh, let's clarify he's, that. He's not out. Everybody might be knowing what you're going there for. What is that? Well, the child that is in utter rebellion against his parents was stoned to death in Israel. Oh, man. Which, which you might remind him he's lucky he's not in Israel. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Count your blessings. Um, all right, so you've got a child that's being surly, and we want to think about a biblical principle or passage, a context that would help us or help him. Help us help him? Or Either, help way. Him. Either way. What about the one that talks about uh, it'll go well with you with your life if you're obedient and respectful to your parents? Yeah, so Proverbs, sit down and, and start going through Proverbs with this, with this youngster would be a good thing. Because it I also think so much. Well, how would it be then going I, good for you in your life versus something going bad for you in your life in that scenario? Well, by going through and helping them realize, and this is what young people often don't get, where they go depends on where they're going. Lots of times young people will start in a direction that everybody around them can see where that goes, but they're not realizing that. Uh, I remember talking with one young man in particular, he was about 15 years old and he was having anger and attitude problems and had been doing a couple things where he'd had some scrapes with the law. And I said, where do you want to be when you're 25 years old? And I said, where do you want to live? And so I just had him imagine his future life the way he wanted it. Uh, he wanted a big house out in the country with a dog and some guns and stuff. Uh, what do you job? And he wanted this particular kind of being a scientist. Uh, how about you want to be married? Yeah, he wanted a beautiful wife that was trustworthy and everything. Uh, what kind of kids? Oh, respectful, obedient and everything. I said, now these are all great. And I would love it if you got these things. 
but the way you're going doesn't get there. You, you can't get there going the way you're going. And I told him, I said, if you don't change, you're going to get locked up. And if you don't get control of yourself, society's going to get control of you. Guess where he spent his 25th birthday? In jail. In prison. I want to call attention to Colossians 3 and verse 21. Sometimes children are just self-centered and uh, they just need to be corrected. Yeah. Um, but sometimes a child that is surly, uh, sometimes the problem is uh, that the parents have not provided enough positive in that child's life. That's true. And, and Colossians 3.21 says, Fathers, provoke not your children that they be not discouraged. Fathers need to be disciplinarians. Fathers need to hold children accountable. Children need to, be, need to be disciplined when they've done something wrong. But there also needs to be that positive um, building up, that, that constructive edification, that constructive discipline, pointing to the child the possibility, kind of like you were talking about, where are you going? Here, here are the possibilities for you. You have this potential. You're doing this well. And if a child doesn't get that positive attention, the child can become discouraged and surly. Yeah. And it might be good. And go ahead, Stephen. Go ahead, Scott. It might be good instead of just the father saying, you're grounded or this or that, and not really getting to the root of the problem, to realize he's gotten a child that he has let develop this attitude problem and that the father needs to invest time in this. And there may need to be some long talks at home, more time spent with the child at home, or it may be that to get his attention, take a couple of days and dad and, and the child go off on a camping trip or something and talk about life and read scripture together and, and, and get, get his face out of his smartphone and away from, you know, the friends that, that he's hanging with and spend some time with him, really helping him think about what life is like and what his attitude should be. And if dad invests some time, it may catch the son's attention that this is really important. Whereas if there's just some nagging or some complaining or there you go again and, and no real consequences and no real time, that's going to have very little effect. And I'll, I'll say we're out of time, but I'll say this just real quickly too. Uh, that what we might call negative discipline is also helpful in a positive way in the sense that sometimes a child who's never corrected gets the sense my parents don't care. They don't care about me. And that can lead to a surly child. So whether you're telling him this is right that you've done or this is wrong that you've done, all that's a part of good parenting. But even if you're not disciplining your child, that sends a message that you're not caring as far as the child is receiving it. Because children need discipline. And there's yeah. something built in us that when we don't get that as a child, we feel neglected as well. Now, Stephen, you had your hand up before. I, I've got the screen up there for people who want to contact you. But you yeah. had something you want to add? We're out of town. We're out of time for today. But I was just going to reference Hebrews twelve five and six. Do not, where he's quoting from Proverbs three. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you're approved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. And on the receiving end of discipline, whether it's from the Lord or from our earthly fathers, uh, we need to appreciate the love we're being shown. It may not be perfect uh, from our earthly parents, but uh, to realize they're trying to point us in the right direction and to be willing to listen. 
Amen on that. So let's thank you, everybody. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, fellow panelists, and thank you all who have watched the webcast today. Yeah, look forward to seeing everybody next week. Same time, same channel. Bye. Bye-bye.